Lord, we know that sometimes it's difficult. It's difficult to get our minds around it, what it means for us. But we do pray, Lord, that you would open it up to us now so that we would learn from it and that we would leave this place and put it into action. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do please sit down. As Joe said, my name's Tim Cross. I'm one of the uh, team of preachers here, and it's lovely to be with you and to welcome Lola. I have to say, I thought that service of dedication was lovely. I thought Tom did it really lovely. It was very nice. I want to start with some good news to encourage you, I think. Some of you may have heard me say this before, but a few years ago there was some research by an organization called Theos, which is a Christian think tank in London that I used to work with. And they came to the conclusion that about four to four and a half million people go to a Christian place of worship every week. Now, they're not all the same people. Some people go every week. But quite a few go once a fortnight. Some go once a month. Some go less than that. Some go for Christmas and, and you know, baptisms, etc., etc. But what that means is around, certainly more than 4.5 million, maybe 5 million, are going to a Christian place of worship on a pretty regular basis, which is far more than go and watch football or rugby, which is what I tend to watch. <laughs> and we should be encouraged by that. But what it also shows, uh, and we're in the middle of a long series at the moment preaching on 1 Corinthians, it does mean that when you go into a long series, not everybody will have been here every week. I mean, Lola's family won't have heard any of this series and friends, uh, and quite a lot of us, including me, will not have been to every one of these uh, services, which started in September, a bit of a break for Advent, and are going to run through all the way to, uh, to Easter, basically. Does anybody want to claim that they've been and listened to every single one of the sermons so far? This is not a competition. Oh, we've got half a hand. Half a hand. So that said, um, what I need to do, I think, today as we're sort of not even halfway, quite halfway through the series yet, is set it into context. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) We live in a time today when uh, people are mostly concerned about their rights but not too concerned about their responsibilities. Which in many ways is what this letter we're studying about is all about. It's about the rights, the privileges, and freedoms of being a follower of Jesus Christ. But it's also about refraining from exercising those rights so that others may hear about and follow Jesus. Paul establishes the church in Corinth in around AD 41. And he stays there for a couple of years growing and maturing the church, and then leaves in about AD 51. And then he writes this letter about three years later. It's the first of the two letters that we've got in the Bible today. And it's in response to some of the reports he's been receiving from others, but also from letters that they have written to him, asking him to clarify some of the issues that they're tackling. And it's possible that he may have written an earlier letter to them as well. But rather like a game of Jeopardy, we have all the answers in this letter, but we don't actually know what those specific questions were. But nonetheless, it's obvious that there were some internal divisions within the church on at least 11 different issues that they were seeking his guidance on. Ten of which were to do with things like sexual immorality, marriage, which foods they could or could not eat. And those latter two, Simon and Sophie, dealt with in a couple of weeks, over the last couple of weeks. Now, Paul doesn't always give simple and definitive answers to those questions. More of a, well, on the one hand this, but on the other hand that. Which hardly prepares us 
for the pretty pedantic and aggressive language that he then uses in today's passage. Again, we don't know for certain what's behind this response, but after an an opening salvo in which he reasserts his authority, he sets out to robustly defend himself against some accusations that have been leveled against him. Now, as we're about to hear, Paul is often a difficult man to follow, sometimes appearing to dance on theological pinheads. But this is an important passage, not least for Paul personally. For there were some in the church who were sitting in judgment on him, particularly wealthy patrons, those who held the purse strings, financing the day-to-day life of the church and supporting the various teachers and preachers who visited Corinth and spoke and lectured and preached and so forth, supporting them with their living expenses. Now, wandering philosophers and missionaries and preachers and so forth in the Greek and Roman world, of which there were many, were usually supported by one of four means. Charging fees, patronage, begging, or working. Each of those choices had detractors, people who saw one or other approach as unworthy. Manual work, for example, received little respect for those who were Greek, who saw it as demeaning for both the preacher and for those listening to him. And various bits of evidence suggest that this is an issue for which Paul personally had struggled with, especially in the places where he spent a long time. But we do know from both Acts chapter 18 and chapter 4 of this letter that here in Corinth, Paul is working as a tent maker, living with a couple called Aquila and his wife Priscilla. Now, why this is so isn't clear, but the bottom line seems to be that some of those teaching in Corinth were receiving hospitality and being prepared to promote an eloquent but false doctrine, causing confusion and harm to weaker believers. And Paul is determined to tackle them and their patrons who were basically playing his refusal to accept any financial support or any other rewards against him arguing that he wasn't really an authentic apostle because he worked for a living. And along with that, they were pointing out that when it came to issues like sexuality and what food could or couldn't be eaten, Paul was a man of two minds, they said, inconsistently saying one thing in one place and something different somewhere else. And they were highlighting the fact that Paul wasn't a very impressive speaker anyway something which he himself acknowledges at the beginning of this letter, saying that he came to them in weakness and fear and trembling, not with wise and persuasive words of human wisdom, but with a demonstration, he said, of the Spirit's power, so that their faith wouldn't rest on him or anyone else, but the wisdom expressed through God's power. So the situation as we go into this reading very serious. Paul is, was, uh, sorry, people were sitting in judgment over Paul and how he answered his critics would make all the difference as to whether or not the Corinthian church would listen to and hold firm to the message that God had given Paul to preach. If he doesn't reestablish his authority as an apostle, then apart from anything else, a false gospel will be established in Corinth and something has to be done. So hopefully that sets the scene. Penny's going to come 
and read the reading to us. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 18. If you've got a Bible, do open it up, or literally physically, or on your iPad, or your phone, or whatever else that people bring to church nowadays. Penny, over to you. As Tim said, it's taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at the first verse. Paul's right as an apostle. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and not drink milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, Is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rights, and I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I'd rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, since I'm compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to to God. God. Thank you, Penny. It's not an easy reading. As I said earlier, Paul is not the easiest writer to understand. And almost certainly, he was not an easy man to deal with back in AD 50. And in this pretty competitive passage, it almost sounds as if he's having an identity crisis. But the crisis isn't about him. It's about others questioning the gospel that he was preaching. And it's about those who hold power in the church, the patrons, who want to sit in the front seats and want to have influence over others, and who only allow in those preachers who endorse their positions of influence 
and their own views and beliefs. Which is why he tackles this issue head on, structuring his attack around two opening questions, which he answers in reverse order. Yes, I am an apostle. And yes, I am free. Before establishing a defense that includes a vehement insistence that he has the right to their financial report, support, only to then strenuously con conclude that he doesn't want it anyway. He reminds them that even if some were calling his apostleship into question, the rest at least must know that he, having met with Jesus on the road to Damascus, was sent to bring the gospel to them, and that he had continued to teach and instruct them in a loving and sacrificial manner, all of which should have been sufficient proof of his apostleship. He therefore has the right to expect support. If others were being supported, then he and Barnabas surely had the legitimate expectation not just not to have to earn a living through physical or secular work, but to have their own and their family's daily needs provided for them. He then goes on to provide some everyday examples to prove that his claims aren't unreasonable. Who serves as a soldier, he says, at his own expense? Well, I can tell you I didn't. I don't think Roddy did either. <laughs> who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the grapes? Or who tends the flocks and doesn't drink of the milk. They're interesting examples because each one of them reflects a particular aspect of the ministry of the gospel. The preacher is a soldier called into service by the Lord to put on the armor and engage in spiritual battles against the devil. He's also a farmer because he plants the seeds of God's word into people's lives and nurtures the gospel. And he's also a shepherd protecting and caring for God's people. No one hires such workers, soldiers, farmers, or shepherds, with the expectation that they should do all the work at their own expense. At the very least, he said, they would be allowed to enjoy something of the fruits of their labors. He then reinforces that argument by saying, do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law, the Mosaic law, say the same thing? And quoting from Deuteronomy 25, he asks that if he's sown spiritual things amongst them, is it too much to expect that he should reap a material harvest? And then, perhaps in the most powerful argument of the lot, he reminds them that under the Old Testament law, priests would receive the various offerings of the people and present them onto the altar. But they would keep the best portions for themselves as a reward for their service. In the same way, says Paul, the Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel should expect to make a living from the gospel. As Jesus himself says in Luke's gospel, the worker deserves his wages. But then and crucially in verses 12 and 15, he says that he doesn't want to use these rights. He hasn't used any of these rights so far and he's not about to start now. On the contrary, he says that he will put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. He doesn't want the Corinthians think, to think that he was one of these false teachers in it just for the money and for the applause, adding that he would rather die than have every, anyone deprive him of this boast. The message version of this particular passage puts it this way. I want to make it clear that I've never gotten anything out of this for myself and I'm not writing to get anything now. I'd rather die than give anyone ammunition to discredit me or impugn my motives. 
If I proclaim the message, it's not to get something out of it for myself. I'm compelled to do it and doomed if I don't. If this was just my own idea of another way to make a living, I'd expect some pay. But since it's not my idea, but something solemnly entrusted to me, why would I expect to be paid? So am I getting anything out of all of this? Yes, as a matter of fact, I am. The pleasure of proclaiming the message at no cost to you. Adding to Ramholm the point that they didn't even have to pay his expenses. Overall, it's a pretty strong and powerful defense. So what does it mean for us today here at St. Paul's? Well, first I would offer that we have great freedom in Christ and we have every right to enjoy that freedom and hold firm to the truth that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gospel has no strings attached to it. It is by grace that we are redeemed and restored. And it is grace that will see us and others welcomed home to walk beside our Savior. And that grace is free. So Paul isn't trying to make some kind of virtue out of denying himself his right for support. And I'm not about to try and make a list of what rights you or I ought to give up for the sake of the gospel. There may well be some, but that's up to the Holy Spirit to tell us about. But we do need to recognize that along with freedom and rights come responsibilities and sacrifices. In an earlier letter to the church in Rome, Paul tells the young Christians there that in view of God's mercy, they are to offer themselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. They are no longer to conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of their minds. The world's way of doing business is to demand what's best for me and to hell with anybody else. My needs, my identity is all that matters. But being a follower of Jesus isn't about exercising my rights in absolute terms. It's not about what's best for me. Defending my rights and demanding the freedom to do things my way, it's about protecting the rights of others and doing what's best for our Christian community and for those who are yet to be welcomed into the kingdom. So in certain situations, it may well be necessary for us to choose not to exercise our rights and liberties, to be ready to refrain from exercising them. If by doing so, we would better serve the cause of Christ, advancing the gospel in the lives of others and helping them to know and follow Jesus better. To willingly lay aside our rights is a clear demonstration that we sincerely trust that God will take care of us and that we genuinely put his priorities in first place in our lives. And being reminded to give up sleep and all the rest of the hassle that comes along with having a newborn baby is a great example of what we have to put aside in order to bring new life into this world. Now secondly, whilst not many church leaders today would argue that they shouldn't be supported financially, and I chatted to Tom earlier and he confirmed that, surprisingly, most still operate under what is called the patron of the living, someone who owns the living and patronage of their church. For most in the Church of England, patronage is just a title exercised by the local bishop, and it's Bishop Andrew in Guildford who is, has the patron of the living for Tom here at St. Paul's. 
But even more surprisingly, some patronage is still held by individuals outside of the church. The church where Christian and I were married and all of our children were baptized has an outside patron, the local landowner. Today, that patronage is exercised lightly. But in previous centuries, it no doubt influenced St. Mary's in many ways. The patron's money not only fixed the church roof, but the appointment and the salary of most church officials, including, most importantly, the vicar, rested in their hands, potentially ensuring that they chose the people who would preach what the patron wanted to hear and what the workers on his estate needed to hear to justify the status quo. And it was an often a way of ensuring that younger members of their family got a job. The eldest son inheriting the estate and the title, the next one joining the church, and the third poor chap having to join the army. I think it was that way around, wasn't it? Over the last few decades, the Church Pastoral Aid Society has bought, bought up, literally bought up, many such patronages in order to ensure that the incumbents are free to preach the gospel. But within many, if not most, churches today, there are individuals who aren't patrons, but whose financial or social influence can be malign. A good friend of mine who ran a big church on the edge of London literally told me earlier this week over lunch that he had decided to stop publishing a list of when he or others were going to preach, as it had become clear that people were choosing which weeks they would or would not decide to poll up to listen to the preacher in order to avoid certain preachers. Having announced this, he quickly received a phone call telling him that he was not allowed to do this. The caller was a key player in the church, financially and otherwise. And he was one of those who only wanted to hear preachers who told him what he approved of. He didn't want to be disturbed by others. Sadly, even today, as in politics and elsewhere, even in the church, he who pays the piper all too often wants to choose the tune. So that said, what do we think Paul would have to say to us in the way that we support the leadership here? How supportive are we? What pressures do we put on Tom and the other leaders here? Are we too guilty of trying to undermine the gospel? Christine and I have been coming to St. Paul since 1983. In fact, I think it's the 40th anniversary, literally, this month. Often posted away, but always returning when we could. And we know that St. Paul's is far from perfect. In fact, you've probably heard the old maxim that if you find the perfect church, don't join, because you'll only spoil it. <laughs> but whilst we've seen many changes over the last 40 years, whether led by David Pryor or Robert Crossley or Mark Chester or now Tom, the gospel has always been preached in this church, not some watered-down version of it. All too often, those running churches only hear a string of complaints, some of which Simon spoke about last week, complaints about the music or the length of the service or the sermon being too long. I heard on the radio today on the Sunday program a suggestion that we should advertise, not we, but churches in the round should advertise services with no sermons and then lots of people would come along. 
or complain that the focus is on the young or new people who I don't know and I therefore don't feel part of things anymore. Now, overall, I don't think this is the case here at St. Paul's, but we do need to recognize the dangers and we need to apply the reverse with words of affirmation to all of those involved in the life of our church and with prayer and offers of our own time, our talents, our treasures to support them. Because ultimately, any church is only about growing the kingdom of God. It's about redemption and salvation. It's about preaching the unadulterated gospel, which Paul was compelled to do and was determined to be free to do. And we should be too. I always think of St. Paul's as an oasis from which we come and drink week by week, and then refreshed, we go back out into the world to preach the gospel through our lives, our actions, and our words. And that applies to all of us, not just the leadership. To do that well, we must, like Paul, be authentic and be prepared to endure all things, lest we hinder or undermine the gospel of Christ. Refraining from exercising our rights, if by doing so, we can open the way for others to know Jesus and then help them to grow in him more and more. The bottom line is that there's nothing should stand in the way of proclaiming the gospel. And may that be true for us. Amen.